Welcome to a place where we combine equal parts science, technology, design, and entrepreneurship. Then we gradually stir in magic to the mixture, and you have the Perception Podcast. Join us in conversations with design heroes, inspirational thinkers, business leaders, and trailblazers across the globe. Our special guest today is Phil Gilbert. Phil is the general manager of IBM Design, where he leads strategy and transformation of product design at IBM. He came aboard IBM in 2010 when his company, Lombardi Software, was acquired. In addition to leading three successful startups, he's a respected thought leader who regularly shares his expertise on topics of portfolio and software design, design governance, strategy and culture with clients, and organizations around the world. This was an honor to speak with him. So without further ado, my conversation with Phil Gilbert. Welcome, Phil Gilbert. Thank you so much for taking the time today to do this. I really appreciate it. You bet. So why don't we start at the very beginning? Um, Tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what did you want to be when you grew up? (laughs) I grew up in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Uh, Yeah, that's where I was uh, all my life. And uh, what did I want to be when I grew up? You know, uh, it's kind of funny, uh, but true story. uh, I wanted to be the president of the United States. Wow. I wanted to be a politician. And uh, I don't know. The earliest memories I have of that are uh, uh, probably a little bit about John Kennedy and certainly the day of the assassination. I remember my mother picking me up at school. uh, And that that didn't happen uh, because I... uh, either at that age was probably maybe was still walking home or, or riding my bike. And I remember she uh, picked me up and was in tears. And uh, I don't know if that, I don't, maybe, maybe that was the original inspiration uh, for actually uh, taking a look at that, at that and saying, uh, that's an important thing. I, I'd like to do that. I got very involved as a very young, very young person in politics from that point forward. Mm-hmm. So what uh, what eventually set you on your career path? Was there some kind of defining moment or event that happened for you? Oh, sure. Much later. Uh, uh, the, the, the actual moment was uh, I had uh, I, I, I wanted to go to school and, and, and wanted to go study political science and, and was talked out of it by my dad who wanted me to get a more practical education. And so I majored in accounting and uh, and I minored in computer science that was happening at the time I got very interested in game theory got out of school and uh, went to work with uh, at the time a big eight I think now it's big four but the big consulting firm and uh, in 1982 uh, one of my clients uh, hired me he had purchased a, a controlling interest in a life insurance company of all things a publicly held life insurance company and uh, he uh, he realized about six months after he had purchased it that it was uh, going belly up, and so he he needed to change things. He fired the management team and he hired he brought in two of us, a buddy of his to be CEO, and he brought me in at that crazy age, which was a ridiculous gamble, uh, to be chief financial officer and to figure out the why they were in this mess. And the day that I left Pete Marwick Mitchell, which was the consultancy that I was with, the day that I left there, I was driving home. And I pulled into a computer land. Computer land were the stores that were uh, selling PCs at the time. PCs were, were very new. And I bought an Apple II computer. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know why. I literally, I remember very clearly in my head thinking, I don't know, I don't know why this is going to be important for, this next, uh, for the next thing that I do, but, but it's going to be important. So bought that personal computer, uh, 
ended up installing one of the very first uh, LANs, local area networks, mm-hmm. uh, ever installed. Uh, it was with a, a group of people who were would ultimately form uh, Novell uh, Netware, but it was it was pre way pre-release code, probably a year or two before Novell started. And uh, anyway, it became very important to that job to ferret out uh, some some fraud that was happening in the claims department. And uh, and I just uh, I, I fell in love with the potential of these of these devices. And that 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 was the moment. It was pulling into that computer land and buying a PC. And reconnecting with uh, reconnecting with my computer science. I remember Computerland. Yeah. So, how did you first discover design? Well, uh, so uh, after uh, eighteen months, we turned that company around and and uh, and it, and we sold it. It got bought by a larger company, and that larger company uh, asked me if I wanted to stay on. And the the last thing I had in my mind was to be a you know, vice president of some insurance company. So I said, nope, I've, I want to go, uh, I want to go preach the gospel of personal computing. And so started my company then. And, uh, at the time, uh, it, you know, you, you were crazy. If you were an executive and you had a personal computer on your desk, you, you were really ridiculed. Uh, it, 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 it was not, you know, politically correct. And so in order for uh, people to start buying my software and uh, to start, uh, you know, adopting these PCs, you had to put uh, interfaces on on your software, what we, you know, interfaces today. Back then it was just, you had to build stuff that they wanted and, and they wanted it and, and it was so useful that they would put up with the ridicule from their peers uh, to have one of these things on their desk. And that was me, my, 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 my company, I, I, you know, it was me that was up at 1am and 2am and 3am in the morning, you know, sweating little details like where buttons go and, 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 and should it be a list box or radio buttons or the, the actual, you know, dialogues and, and, and interaction design, we would call it today. I didn't know what it was then. It was right. just, it was just building stuff that people wanted. And, uh, and, it, and it was very difficult uh, to scale it, you know, it was very difficult to hire people that would sweat those details the way that I would sweat them. And I never did understand why, but that's just the way it was. Uh, later, it, it, it wasn't until uh, through a series of connections and started doing work with Apple and Microsoft and through a connection that was kind of uh, uh, fortuitous, uh, it, it got involved with helping uh, Microsoft work on a, on a bolting, uh, a programming language onto a forms package that, uh, that Bill Gates had bought from a guy named Alan Cooper. Hmm. And, uh, that's when I ran into what Alan was doing. And then it was like, Oh, wait a second. There's a, there's a discipline behind, uh, building great products and it's called design mm-hmm. and uh that was it and it was and so and so for me it, it was about scale like to me the interesting thing about design i mean i love great design but as a business person which is what i really am more than anything else uh as a business person design allowed me to scale building great things in a way that I had never figured out before. 
So let's start with some broad definitions. What is design thinking, and then what is IBM's philosophy of design thinking? <laughs> what is design thinking? Design thinking is common sense. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, it's just a codified way to do what's right, uh, and, and it's and it's to and it's to realize a, a couple of things. First of all, that we should be building things for the people that use them, and secondarily, we are not our users. Uh, we may represent aspects of our users, but we are not our users. And I think that uh, all the rest of it uh, j just follows those two simple concepts. Uh, go out and do user research, uh, iterate, prototype, get feedback, just doing things that you would do. It's certainly things that I have done my entire career. And uh, so the fact that it's codified and th the fact that there's you know some sets of practices uh, around it, again, help us scale common sense. At IBM, uh, what we've done to it is, is we, we don't practice, you know, any kind of different design thinking, but we have, as, as we think about the scale at IBM scale, which means we have thousands of teams simultaneously building stuff, and these teams are, uh, are, are pretty complex, and, and they're complex for a reason. Uh, when we deliver product, we deliver it at, at global scale. And so we, we, you know, have to build for you know, multiple cultures at once. Our teams are geographically uh, located with may maybe more complexity than some other companies. And so what we've done is we've inserted a few key uh, tactical uh, things around uh, design thinking that helps us more consistently apply it. Uh, in this environment. So when you first started at IBM, what were some of the uh, steps that you, you had to take to implement this in the, in the entire corporation? Can you walk me through the, the process that that took? Because I know it didn't happen overnight, and I know it took a while, and we're all familiar with the, the, the vast investment IBM has made in, in IBM design and the hiring of all these designers, but take me through how that all uh, came to be. Yeah, so uh, when I got here, I, I got here via an acquisition in 2010. I'd started a company in 2002, and it was bought in 2010. And uh, shortly after uh, I got to IBM, I was asked to lead uh, the the subdivision uh, that that had that had purchased uh, Lombardi, which was uh, the company. Um, and that subdivision had about uh, about 44 different products in it. Uh, being worked on by, roughly speaking, about a thousand uh, developers, uh, and, and so it was kind of an interesting acquisition because uh, Lombardi, from a technical standpoint, from a capability standpoint, uh, Lombardi didn't do anything that you couldn't do with some uh, some subset of these forty-four products. Mm -hmm. It was just designed better. It was designed with, with with users in mind, and so it was easier to use. And and as a result, we were winning our market. And so uh, I was I was asked to you know, essentially, we're not sure exactly what you did to to build this, you know, seemingly you know boring middleware called business process management software. We don't know what you did to make it delightful and to and to and to get your users to love it so much, but you know, would you do that across this portfolio of products? Mm -hmm. That was really the, the first thing that we did. And uh, the steps to do it uh, were, were 
pretty simple. Uh, we obviously started, you know, uh, practicing design thinking, but but more to the point, we started with the makeup of the teams themselves. Uh, historically, most uh, most computer companies, their their teams are actually all engineers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there might be a few product managers thrown in there, but it's a, a very engineering led. Uh, culture. We, we still see this today in a lot of different technology companies. And so the first thing that we had to do is we had to address that imbalance. And we really had to make these multidisciplinary teams. Uh, so uh, over the period of uh, that period of 18 months, we reshaped those, uh, those people so that our teams were roughly speaking about one designer and one product manager for about every uh, eight or 10 developers. Mm-hmm. That was the that was the biggest thing that we did, and uh, and then of course we brought in these these new practices of design thinking, uh, married with the agile practices that the team that the teams were already uh, working on. Uh, th- that was step one. Step two was to use design thinking itself, go out, do field research, understand the needs of the users, and we uh, we reshaped our portfolio as as a result. So we we used design thinking to design the new portfolio, and we took forty four products down to four. Hmm. And, uh, and then we reshaped the teams that were building those four products. And, uh, over a period of about 18 months, uh, we dramatically, uh, took market share. Mm-hmm. Uh, we took massive amounts of market share and our user satisfaction. We, we weren't measuring using net promoter score at the time, but had we been using something quantifiable like, uh, like NPS, uh, it would have, I don't know, it would have, it just would have gone way up. <laughs> hmm. So that, that was the initial uh, business case that we had. Uh, and in uh, January of 2012 uh, is when our current uh, chairman uh, became CEO. And she actually became CEO in December of 2011. But uh, when uh, Jenny Rometty, uh came in as CEO, she is very committed to client experience and to uh, users' experience in our products. And so uh, that's when the conversation shifted to, okay, so we see that this works. We see that it can work at IBM. Uh, can we do this everywhere? Mm-hmm. And that was the green light. That's the beginning of the, the journey that we're on. So there were some significant measurable results all early on that got the, the corporate buy-in to, to move full steam ahead. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we, didn't, we didn't start that uh, process up uh, as a pilot for a bigger thing. Uh, but that's what it turned into. Now fully realized, you, I think you've called it the scientific method of the 21st century. How do you feel yep. it's impacted IBM's overall business results across the entire organization? Yeah, well, you know, it, 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 it's really hard to, uh, to, to quantify, you know, what a, any particular approach does. What, like, what does Agile bring or what, what does design thinking bring? What do hiring all the designers bring? Uh, to some degree, uh, because it's because this notion of the outcome is actually the result of a whole team's efforts, mm-hmm. I don't believe that you can discreetly measure the value of design. Because, for example, uh, if something doesn't work, if it technically doesn't work, a user's experience is going to be pretty poor. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so uh, did design contribute to that, or was that the engineering issue? Uh, however... Uh, I, I can say this, uh, at the very beginning, uh, we did a couple of things. Uh, first of all, we intent, we intentionally positioned this program as the underpinnings 
uh, for the teams that were working on what we at IBM call our strategic imperatives. These are the uh, technical capabilities like uh, like uh, analytics and and AI and and, and, and the cloud, uh, technical capabilities that form the basis for the future IBM. Mm-hmm. And we've always known that the strategic imperatives uh, ultimately had to grow uh, to a point where they were bigger and growing faster than some of the older businesses that that IBM has been in. Uh, when we start, when we announced, uh, made, made the initial announce of our strategic imperative uh, uh, and, and and what constituted them, uh, Jenny made the statement that by the end of 2018, if the strategic imperatives uh, exceeded $40 billion and exceeded 40% of the company, uh, th- that, that was what we were committing to. In fact, uh, the strategic imperatives are in excess of 40% of our revenues today. Hmm. And uh, I think at the latest run rate, uh, that we announced and made public uh, after Q2. I, I'm, 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 may have, I'm, I'm close. I, I may have the exact number a little bit wrong uh, off the top of my head, but they're at about $34 billion. Wow. So we're exceeding, we're exceeding the commitment that we made several years ago. And we think that this way of working is helping us do that. Uh, in addition, uh, starting at the uh, beginning of 2016, we really started uh, using Net Promoter Score globally and uh, started uh, instrumenting our products uh, as well as our services offerings uh, with Net Promoter Score. And where we have these properly formed teams using design thinking and agile, uh, as well as moving to continuous integration and continuous delivery, where we have that all in place, the Net Promoter Score is dramatically higher than where we don't. Hmm. So uh, that we're still in early days, but but those are kind of two metrics that, that we look to to help us validate whether we think we're on the right path. That's incredible. You know, looking back at IBM, there's some, some amazing design history of Elliot Noyes and Charles and Ray Eames, of course, Paul Rand at the heart of, of IBM's history. I think uh, Thomas Watson Jr. even had a famous quote about good design being good business. Yep. But it feels like there might have been a lull sometime before you got there in the design culture at IBM. Why do you think that happened? Is there, was there like a pause in, in between all that great design heritage and this new uh, momentum that you've built? Well, I, I, I think a couple of things uh, transpired. Um, for, first of all, uh, both Elliot and uh, Charles passed away in the late 1970s. And I think that that had a dramatic impact. It was, and, and it happened right at the time when companies were also undergoing a, uh, a really major organizational shift, uh, global companies. Uh, at the time, they weren't called global companies. They were called multinational companies. And they were uh, very much American companies that were doing business in a lot of foreign countries. And in that late 70s time period, that's actually when organizationally, uh, the large global organizations started to rethink that strategy and started to uh, put in place much stronger uh, local management in each of the countries that we operated in. And what this means is that, for example, the country general manager of Japan or the country general manager of France uh, had a lot more say, including over uh, marketing and, and, and over uh, product design that, that, was, uh, that, that was done in that country. This wasn't unique to IBM. This happened uh, for all large global organizations at the time. I think those two things uh, really worked together 
to uh, start, you, you, you start to see fractures in some of that beautiful and beautifully consistent and united design uh, that were coming out of IBM. Now, at the same time, our corporate design uh, in, in, our, uh, in, in our communications and in our marketing, as well as our hardware design, uh, continue to have very, very high standards. And we continue to work with great designers in those areas. The third thing that happened, happened in the 1990s. And that is when the software group uh, started to be formed. And you started to, get, to see a shift in IBM's uh, uh, revenues and in our product mix, hardware started to be less and less important to the IBM company overall, and software and services became the main focus. Those two groups were formed uh, starting in the mid-1990s, and neither of those two groups had design as a founding ethic. Mm-hmm. And so you had this, this, this really uh, kind of interesting storm where there was still great design being done, but it was being done in parts of the company that were becoming less and less important and less and less visible mm-hmm. to the consuming public. And these two bigger bigger pieces, our software and our services business, they never had design in them at all. Mm-hmm. So it's not that, uh, in, in a sense, it's not that design went away. Uh, it's just that it was impacting less and less of the forward face of IBM. And so we get to the uh, late uh, 2000 aughts, uh, up until 2010 or 2012, and uh, wow, you know, if you think about uh, Apple uh, when when Jobs went back to it, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know the, the entire 2000 aughts were all about uh, great design in software interface. Right. So that that that's kind of where we were, and and it's certainly been what what we've had to focus most on. So not really that there was a lull, uh, not really that it went away. Uh, it's just that we had to put it in the part in, into the parts of the business that were the most important parts. Yeah, it's almost like you had to bring it back to the forefront, or at least in the public's perception of IBM, to bring it back to uh, to front and center when yep. it was probably always there. It's just now it's it's very evident and it's very well known. And, and it's very evident in, in, in the in the forward-facing uh, elements of IBM, which which are our uh, software and services. I mean, in in, in a cloud-based world, uh, you know, it's all about the software. Absolutely. How's IBM's design process and approach different than other tech giants? You brought up Apple, which is an obvious example. Um, other tech giants who've also put design at the center of their culture. How do you guys structure your design programs differently than uh, all the others? Yeah, well, I don't know about all the others. You know, I I I think one of the things that IBM, uh, one of the things that we pride ourselves on is is we do have a very uh, decentralized uh, uh, culture, and so uh, one of the things that that we've done that is different from most corporate design programs, not just tech companies, but but others as well, is we've really tried to put the power of the uh, of design into the community itself. Uh, and so our designers are actually deployed into the business. Uh, it, it's not a, uh, although we work in our you know physical spaces in, in our studios around the world together, uh, our designers are actually on the product teams with the product people. So it's not like we work in a studio model where uh, product teams bring a, bring us a brief or a project and we you know work on it and then hand them back the design. Our designers are on those product teams, just like the developers and and, and the product managers. So figuring out how to 
how to achieve the consistency that we want, uh, figuring out how that we uh, ha- how we uh, uh, maintain the quality that that we want in a highly highly distributed model globally. That's kind of been uh, the 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 magical desire or, or kind of the the interesting aspect of our design program versus some others. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier about um, measuring uh, success. Uh, you mentioned net promoter score and, and, and other ways of quantifying. How do you personally measure the success of a design, design initiative and a user experience? Uh, pr- pretty much through net, net promoter score. Um, we're, our, our, our program has been built around, um, uh, around the outcome. And it's the outcome in the marketplace that matters. And and when I say that, I'm not I'm not talking necessarily about revenues. That's one component of an outcome. But I'm talking about the 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 total experience that is delivered, uh, and and that a user engages with. And so that by definition that includes is the problem that we're solving the right problem. All of a sudden, you're talking primarily about product management. Is it solved elegantly? Now you're talking about design. Is it delightful design? Does it work? Engineering. We, we really are, are spending a lot of effort on net promoter score because we feel like it's one thing that really kind of tries to quantify the overall experience uh, that a user has w- w- with a product. So that, that's, that's what we're focused on now. Um, mm-hmm. We obviously do a lot of field research. We get a lot of feedback. We're you know, constantly iterating with our with our clients and with our users, we have a program that we call our sponsor user program, which is a formal program uh, where uh, real people, real users at our clients uh, actually engage with us. They, they, they actually co-create many of our products with us. Uh, it's not a beta testing program. It's these are people that are intimately involved from the very beginning of the of the of the uh uh, products lifecycle, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 they participate every step of the way with us a, as we build a particular uh, product or, or or service, and they they vouch for it. Uh, so uh, the feedback from our sponsor users, uh, and uh, and then ultimately whether those sponsor users and their organizations actually buy the thing once it once it gets released, these are other mechanisms that 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 we use to try to make sure that we stay on the right track. Awesome. What's the best piece of design you've ever seen? Oh, best piece of design I've ever seen? Turntable. Nice. A turntable. Who can't use a turntable? I remember when Particular I was... Particular brand? Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> the brand I have now is Macintosh. But, uh, but you know, I, I can remember when I was a, a little kid, you know, uh, you, you pick up the tone arm and you drop it on that piece of vinyl and... and, and sound comes out it's mm-hmm. like how Magical. and you you i just i i i i've got grandkids now and uh you know i, I see the uh, our our oldest is three years old and our our three-year-old he doesn't go up to my macintosh turntable but he goes to his you know kind of uh, uh his turntable and he could walk up and pick up the tone arm and drops it on the vinyl i mean there's nothing simpler there's nothing more intuitive mm-hmm. i'll tell you a funny story though Please. Uh, a guy who uh, worked with Elliot Noyes, who is a good friend of the program, and he's still a, a practicing designer. His name is Gordon Bruce. Uh, in fact, he wrote the book on, he literally wrote the book on, on Elliot Noyes. Uh, he told me one time a funny story. He, he was teaching a, a class in uh, Korea, and uh, he 
had one of his exercises was uh, to take a dollar or the equivalent of, of a dollar and go out that night and buy something, buy the best thing, buy the best designed thing you can for under the dollar equivalent, whatever their currency was. Um, and he said they all came back and they came back with all these, you know, tchotchkes and, and, and junk and things like that. And, and uh, when it got to be his turn, he pulled out a banana <laughs> and he said, this is the best design ever. He goes, because the wrapper will tell you when it's ready to eat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it goes from green to yellow. And, uh, and it, there, there could be nothing more intuitive than, you know, you peeling off the wrapper. So uh, maybe the ban banana is even better than a turntable, but I like turntables. Awesome. So in the, in the time that you've been leading the charge, you've achieved so much uh, at IBM Design. Are you satisfied with the current state or is there much left for you to, to accomplish there? I'm proud of the current state, but I'm not satisfied. Uh, we have so much left to do and, and, and we're still in early days. I mean, uh, you know, when you look at companies like, uh, like Braun or, um, or even more modern ones like, 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 uh, like Coca-Cola or, or, or Nike, you know, the, the, these are companies that have, you know, decades and decades and decades of, of, of great design history. It, it, it's so baked into, uh, it, it's so baked into their DNA. Sure. Um, we're not there yet. You know, we, we, uh, I, I, I would say where we are is, uh, it, it's in all of our heads. Uh, it's in some of our hearts. Mm -hmm. And so the work to be done is to get it in all of our hearts. And that's, and, and that's a, that's a long journey. Um, so that's one thing that I look forward to continuing to do is to make sure that uh, what we're doing uh, can't leave the company any more than the other values that an IBMer stands for. Uh, and so we're on that journey, work to be done. I think also, uh, you know, we have a lot of opportunity to uh, continue to bringing design together across uh, every aspect of what we do and, and how people engage with us, uh, you know, bring more consistency to how we, uh, we bring design not only into our products and services, but into the, uh, uh, bespoke solutions that, that we co-create with, with our clients and, and how it permeates our events. Uh, so, uh, we're doing a lot of work on, you know, bringing, uh, a, a, a cohesive design system, uh, across every aspect of, of how people uh, meet IBM in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Is there any specific initiatives that you could talk about that you're most excited for? Uh, wow. Th there's, th there's a ton of them. Uh, we're, we're doing, you know, uh, we have, uh, uh, IBM is a uh, cloud platform and cognitive solutions company. That's who we are today. Uh, and so the, the, the work that we're doing to help our clients, you know, navigate to this new world of uh, kind of very data-centric world uh, and uh, making sure that the experience they have with all of these diverse data sets, but also the experience that they have in connecting to the 80% of the data that exists in the world that's not on the public internet 
the data that's behind our clients' firewalls that gives them their proprietary advantage, mm-hmm. uh, creating experiences that actually let them leverage that, but leverage it in a way that brings the modern economics of today's cloud and then gives the added capabilities of AI. These are very hard problems, and uh, they require a company like IBM that's able to convene ecosystems and to drive ecosystems of users to work with one another. You know, we're doing some really fascinating work, uh, uh, which uh, with, for example, uh, Walmart in China uh, using blockchain, but cloud-based, cloud-based blockchain technologies to provide the provenance of the food that Walmart distributes in China, hmm. right? This is this requires dozens of uh, of partnerships uh, that really only a company like I- IBM could bring together. Mm-hmm. But the design the design constraints and the design problems uh, that that you encounter when you start to do that and you really start to think about these ecosystems of of dependent users that are all in different organizations uh, having to having to uh, come up with new business processes for entire industries. Uh, th- these are some exciting things. We're working with a huge uh, shipping company uh, in, in, in the Nordics, again, bringing together about 30 or 40 different companies to rethink how shipping containers are tracked and passed through customs globally. Hmm. Uh, that's, that's a pretty fascinating design challenge. Yeah, for sure. And requires so, a lot of uh, a lot of domain knowledge in each of these unique industries. Absolutely, absolutely. And just like I say, the you know one of the things I find most exciting about uh, it, enterprise uh, software design and uh, enterprise service design versus consumer product design. Uh, consumer products can be very very complex. Uh, your smartphone that, that that's a really complex thing, but the user the, the user patterns in consumer software are pretty simplistic and there's almost usually no dependent users. Uh, if I go use my mixer and it succeeds or it fails, uh, nobody else really cares except maybe their, their food got prepared on time. Uh, when you are dealing in, a, in, a, in an enterprise uh, context, there are other users that are dependent on your successful use of the tool that you're using. And and oftentimes that tool actually serves multiple of those users because the data that you're generating, the data that you're preparing, the data that you're editing, the data that you're approving, that goes on in, it lives on in some business process. There are other dependent users that are depending on you using that specific tool and generating that specific piece of information. Understanding these networks of dependencies is a huge challenge, and it's a big part of why we've made such an investment in design research as a part of our design uh, group. Uh, a lot harder problems in the enterprise space than in the consumer space. Uh, so again, it's uh, uh, we happen to be living at a time when entire industries are changing their business models and, th- and, and, and therefore are fundamentally changing their business processes to react to those new business models. Uh, it's it, it's a phenomenal time to be in design, uh, it, and it's a really phenomenal time to be, I think, in B two B or enterprise design. Absolutely. 
Well, Phil, thank you so much. This was really a fascinating conversation. Uh, I greatly appreciate your time. Where can people follow you online? I know you're pretty active uh, on the social outlets. Yeah, yeah. Probably the best is Twitter. Uh, and it's my, my Twitter handle is uh, Phil Gilbert, S-R, uh, P-H-I-L-G-I-L-B-E-R-T-S-R, Phil Gilbert Sr. And if you want an even better Twitter feed, you can go to Phil Gilbert Jr. <laughs> His is even more fun than mine. So Excellent. Well, thanks again, right. Phil. Yeah, Jeremy, thanks a lot. Good, I really good appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. And that wraps up another episode of the Perception Podcast. As always, send any questions and comments to ask at experienceperception.com. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. Sign up for our weekly newsletter on our site, experienceperception.com slash contact. Lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes and write a nice review. See you on the next episode.